Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Clement Knox, has written Strange Antics. A History of Seduction, which I'm holding up right here, which is an excellent book that's, as it says, study the history of seduction. And insta- seduction has always been around, but we talked a little bit about this before the recording. So it's quite an intriguing and fascinating subject. So how did you come about writing a book on this topic? Hi, yeah, good to be here. Um, I came to this basically through reading. Uh, I've reading very widely uh, in my 20s uh, when I was kind of thinking and started thinking about this subject and one of the things I noticed was that there are all these uh, seduction narratives in our culture uh, which have been around since the 18th century which were there in the very first novels Samuel Richardson, uh, Jane Austen, Charlotte uh, Laclau who wrote Dangerous Liaisons and these stories have been told and retold uh, for the last 300 years um, you know, in around the time I was thinking this novel, one, this book rather, one of the best-selling novels in the world was um, uh, Shade, uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. And Fifty Shades of Grey is a direct retelling of Samuel Richardson's Pamela. I don't know if the author knew that or not, but the, the tropes mm. were there. And there is, there is this deep fascination with this subject in our society. And like with so many things, once you get really interested in something, you, the first thing you think is someone must have written a book about this. And I was looking around and I found that basically no one, no one had. And so I thought I would give it a go. We're going to start with, you mentioned the introduction in literative, literature narrative. So let's begin with some examples from literature and how that inspired the, the seduction narrative and how that drove on in the seduction world. Sure. And, and, before I answer the question, it's important to remember that obviously like literature has, has a kind of fictional component um, where people are just telling stories and there's lots of reasons why you might do that. But there's always uh, a social component in that they're responding to real things happening around them. And so the first great seduction narrative uh, in, a, in a novel was Samuel Richard's Pamela, Richardson's Pamela in 1741 or so. Um, widely considered the first novel in English, although that's a very controversial subject, <laughs> but it's often cited as one of the, the first three or so. Um, and that is the story of a uh, young lady who goes to work in the mansion of a kind of dissolute aristocrat. And she is pursued um, in a way which is, to our eyes, extremely non-consensual. And uh, she goes through all these kind of tragic events being pursued by this man and eventually her virtue wins out and she can converts him to the, the ways of uh you know straight living and they get married and and this was the kind of 
first ever uh, seduction narrative in novel form, and it was a massive bestseller. It was hugely influential in um, in English uh, society. It was translated into several foreign languages as well, and was one of the great um, bestsellers of the 18th century. And that kind of began at the very birth of the novel this fascination with with seduction. Mm. And obviously, there are so many more like examples to go to, but let's begin with one of the most famous seducers in the world, and use use this term like, "Oh, he's a real Casanova, ain't he?" or something that kind of thing. So let's begin to talk in one of the most famous seducers, arguably, I think, and that's, sure. as we mentioned, Casanova. Exactly, and and Casanova was living around the same time as as Pamela was 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 written. Um, and he was from Venice and he was this kind of traveling con man slash musician slash kind of courtier. And uh, the reason his life is such an interesting sort of story is, is in part because he kept, he wrote sort of eight volumes of biography, which are one of the most fascinating insights into the 18th century that survives. So I recommend everyone reading that because they are just hilarious and fascinating and kind of un, unparalleled as a resource. Um, but also, as you mentioned, he's kind of really survived in the popular imagination as a kind of archetype. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about him was because he represented a very different strain in this history of seduction, whereas Pamela was a kind of a strain of concern and worry and maybe even moral panic. Uh, Casanova represented another strain, which was of kind of excitement and joy and sensuousness and um, I would suggest that that is a kind of uh, dichotomy which has survived today, where some people are kind of embrace sexual freedom and other people uh, are very concerned about the consequences of sexual freedom. Hmm. And the, let's talk about the life of Casanova because his, his life is as well quite interesting. But, but yeah, yeah, like you said, his life is quite interesting in itself and you spend like, a good deal talking about him in a book. Yeah, I mean, like I say, because they are because he wrote so much about his life, it's very hard to synthesize and summarize his existence because he was constantly moving around Europe. He was constantly getting into these kind of adventures and scrapes. And um, although he was born in relatively humble circumstances, the son of an actress in in um, in Venice and, and actors and actresses back then were the kind of very bottom of society, even though they had a quite an interesting um, place in it. Um, he uh, just kind of through sheer force of personality became this kind of wandering uh, public figure uh, who turns up everywhere in the 18th century. It's, it's amazing the number of people who meet Casanova and discuss him in, in their memoirs, uh, the kind of uh, great uh, memoirist Boswell, James Boswell, encountered him in a in a sort of German hotel once and recorded it in his diaries. And he had no idea who he was, but he recorded his name. And centuries later, you know, people were like, "Oh yeah, that was Casanova he met." So he also met Voltaire and um, was at the court of uh, Louis the Sixteenth. Um, lived in London for a period of time. Lived, lived all over the place. I discussed his famous incident in Ven in Venice, where he got arrested basically for public immorality and end up escaping from the ducal palace from the from the prison cells in the very top which i happened to visit during the course of researching the book so he's just a fascinating figure the reason he's such a good person to discuss though is because he, he provides an insight into the whole spectrum of 
uh, European society in the 18th century, which uh, was an extremely, um, uh, you know, sexually liberated place and was very interested in the subjects of sexual freedom and sexual constraint. So he, he's just a great way into that world. Hmm. Let's talk about his, uh, his uh, because arguably what is most known for is seduction. So let's talk about some of his, about some of the women he seduced and how, what made him such a good seducer? Was it, the, was it like you said, he grew up among actresses and he was, was from the very high society? Did he learn through kind of acting in a way or how, how did he become such a famous seducer? And so let's talk about some of the seduction that he did. Right. I mean, it's it's obviously fairly hard to know um, what the kind of exact truth of of the, the matter is. I mean, he was living in an age uh, where where prostitution was very widespread and and also quite um, loosely defined. There, there, there were a lot of blurred lines. And there was also a huge amount of what we would consider rape, um, especially of servants and people in kind of uh, dependent positions. So from the 21st century perspective, he is quite a tricky character. And anyone who reads his memoirs, reads it closely, some of the things that he's describing in these kind of liberated terms to us would just be, you know, you would be in jail uh, uh, <laughs> for doing So um, I'm very kind of uh, conscious of that. At the same time, um, Casanova talks uh, a lot about, about kind of the, the, the foundations of um, of, of what he's doing and, and the logic behind what he's doing. And a lot of it is based on these enlightenment ideas of reason and rationality. And he truly believed that people were um, sort of individual free agents with the gift of reason and that um, sexual pleasure was something people wanted and people uh, sort of could, could uh, uh, kind of enjoy together without the kind of uh, constraints of society and morality and everything else. So, in that sense, his vision was very similar to the, the vision of the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s um, of the 20th century. Um, and uh, that having been said, in terms of what, why was he a great seducer, that is a bit of a mystery. I think he actually wasn't a very good looking person. He, he made quite a bad impression on, on lots of people who met him. Um, uh, so there's definitely still a, a kernel of mystery there, which we can't really penetrate from a uh, 300 years distance. So did you have certain methods that he used to seduction? And as, but as we talked about, there was a lot of persecution around. So as you said, it wasn't very good looking. So Chan, most of the seduction had been prostitutes. Do we know if most of his seductions were from, you know, prostitutes or did he, you know, do we know any methods that he used for this, his seduction? Uh, I'm 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 trying to think now. I mean, I I, I say that he, some of the most famous uh, accounts in the book in, involve um, a young lady. I think he knew her father, who was um, staying in a Venetian convent, which was, ba- which was basically a boarding school where kind of uh, well-born women uh, were kept before they were married. And there's a very long sequence in the memoirs describing his kind of courtship uh, and seduction of her which involves sneaking into this convent uh, on several occasions in the middle of the night um i think a big part of his method was was pretty much that he was extremely uh, garrulous and sort of large living character he would gamble a lot go out uh, all hours of the night he was i think he was just great fun to be around 
and uh, obviously in the in the end quite quite a shameless figure as well um i don't know if we can we can accurately tell from a distance <laughs> what his methods were and and the extent to which they were kind of unique or, or particularly special mm-hmm. and yes they, it does also blur into this other problem of uh was was some of this just exploitation that he was dressing up as mm-hmm. as seduction mm. so so what did it that's something else in Italy that was arguably most, you know, that, that I didn't know about until you wrote the book and I found quite fascinating is that, you know, concubinage has been around for since perhaps the dawn of time. And, mm-hmm. you know, mostly it's the male who has a concubine or two. But in Italy, and I believe this was mostly Venice, but, you know, they, there was females. I don't remember what it's called. They had a very specific name. I can find it up, but look it up, but... There were females and male concubines in yeah. Italy, and that's something I found really fascinating. Yeah, that's a lot of reviewers picked up on that, and uh, the, the word is chichispe, which is C I C I S B A B E O. So it's kind of a hard word to say, um, and I think it's I think it's from Venetian dialect. Um, so yeah, it's a strange one. Uh, but yes, this was a very, very real, although slightly um, enigmatic practice where married women would have basically male um, admirers who would would kind of dote on them. So the, they would hold uh, the lady's fan or, uh, you know, uh, play the piano for her or kind of generally keep her entertained whilst her normally much elder husband was doing whatever he was doing and the sexual component of it is very hotly debated um because some people just think it was basically they were they were there to keep company um other people dispute that um this is all happening in the context of italian uh society where often older men you know their wives would die or whatever and they would remarry very young women and it was understood that there was no love involved. These were kind of social matches. And so normally once the the wife bore one child, they were widely considered to be sort of freed from their other obligations. There was a famous um, Pope in the 18th century uh, who was Italian, like they all were, um, who once made a joke to a bunch of uh, unmarried young women that if they didn't get married, they would never enjoy the pleasures of widowhood, meaning that they need they should get married in the understanding, it was just a transaction. And then once their much elder husband died, they could live freely. But uh, under this kind of female concu- male concubinage in, in Venice, especially, you didn't have to wait until your husband died. You could b- basically do it uh, uh, as long as it was discreet and out of the way. And um, Byron, the, the English poet, he actually wound up in exactly this relationship with Teresa Guccioli, uh, where she was married to a much older woman, a man, sorry, and she took him as a lover and he was reduced to being basically her kind of footman. <laughs> and he wrote some extremely uh, upset letters back to England de- deploring this um, custom whilst he was living in the house of her husband in Ravenna and would be forced to engage in this rather, to his eyes, peculiar relationship. One of the reasons he didn't like it was because it, it gave women quite a lot of power. Whereas mm. he was used to these a lot more imbalanced relationships where, you know, uh, this kind of rakish Englishman could get someone pregnant and run away. Whereas this this kind of system didn't really allow for that. He, he found it quite humiliating, didn't, didn't he? He didn't like it at all, being, you know, yeah, he really, a male concubine. Yeah, and he, he said, I would much 
rather have old-fashioned adultery than this new practice, which mm-hmm. I find very humiliating. Do we know if, you know, like you said, it wasn't about love, but just sexual pleasure, but do we know if the male concubine ever did fall in love with the woman, or do we know if, did that ha- ever happen, or did they understand that this is just a fling, so to speak? I think, I think, I mean, I, I, I think basically I'm sure that did happen. Uh, like, like I say, it's quite, um, it's quite a enigmatic institution mm. because it, didn't last for very long it's probably sort of less than a century um and a lot of the accounts of it come from the outside by basically tourists visiting italy seeing this practice and being horrified um i'm sure there was almost certainly cases where where these were basically real love affairs which were being kind of uh, dressed up as this kind of very formal and acceptable social arrangement um but the truth is we don't know much much about it from from reliable sources uh, mm. on the inside, and like I say, Byron is one of the few uh, English uh, accounts we have. Someone who actually experienced it, and he was obviously very prejudiced because and, and, and exceptional in lots of different ways. Um, so yeah, it's something we'll we'll never know exactly what the dynamics of it were. What kind of men were were these countrymen? Was it lower class of society, or was it the mi- middle, or was it the higher class that they're now to become? Just sure the social equals of the women involved, because uh, these were very stratified societies. Um, and I suppose, as you can readily imagine, if, if you were kind of a, a young man in Venice and all of the, the women were being married off to these very old men, it would be very natural for, for people of the same age to be socializing with each other and mm-hmm. wanting to spend time with each other. And I'm sure this was just a way of kind of facilitating that uh, in a respectable, socially tolerated way. Mm-hmm. If if a male contraband eventually got married with someone else, would it was would it still break the bond, or could it be was it allowed to you know continue having his? Would it, but then would be a mistress at the time, or was it like over? If it ever no. happens, I mean, I I think basically everyone was given quite a lot of leeway as to what they did, as long as there was a a, a certain amount of discretion. This is something Casanova talks about a lot, you know, having to constantly be booking rooms and hotels and apartments for assignations, which was basically all of this was tolerated and any a certain amount of sexual freedom, especially for, for the upper classes, was celebrated so long as you didn't um, step over the boundaries. And so there was always a game between sexual freedom and kind of recognizing the formal rules of society. I mean, this sounds kind of like this could be a great fictional novel to me. Like you have this male concubine village who can perhaps fall in love, you know, with this woman he is uh, sexually, I'm not exploiting, that's the wrong word, but you know, this would sound like an exciting novel that should, should be written, you know. It's, uh, it, to me, it does kind of sound that way. Yeah, we'll have to find someone with the, with the talents of a novelist. <laughs> But another thing that happened in this era, in the late 17th, 18th century, is, of course, the Women's March on Versailles. So let's talk a little bit about the Women's March. Right. So, uh, yeah, Casanova lived long enough just to see the early years of the French Revolution. And um, the French Revolution, uh, what you're referring to is this famous incident in October of 1793, where the uh, the women of Paris, the kind of women who worked in the markets and the laundries, kind of the working class women, marched on the the palace of Versailles and um, 
made the king come back to Paris. Uh, and it was he, he was essentially uh, kidnapped by the revolution and brought back to Paris where he could be more easily monitored and controlled. And it was a big turning point in the French Revolution. Um, one of the reasons I bring it up in, in the book is because it gave rise to um, uh, uh, Burke's famous um, reflections on the revolution in France. It was a direct response to this event. And in relation to it, he says, uh, chivalry is dead. That, uh, that famous um, line. And one of the reasons he says that is because he had been working inside this 18th century conception of sensibility and women being um, these meek uh, sort of creatures controlled by their passions and kind of inferior to men. And the French Revolution, um, amongst many other things in, in, this, in this period, showed women in a very different light as kind of dynamic um, uh, political agents, involved in the affairs of what was once considered the, the domain of men and um it was a real shock and it, and it and it shows that the cult of sensibility was in some ways a very conservative institution designed to kind of uh keep the place of men and women separate and defined and uh events like the, the french revolution really helped shatter that and and created uh in part the modern conservative movement mm. And we don't jump a little bit in time right now, and I apologize for that, but something in the late 19th century is one of the most arguably famous, and I'm fairly sure everyone knows, knows this event of the Jack the Ripper. And how does that fit in the seductive narrative with Jack the Ripper? As you write, do write a little bit about him as well. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that section of the book about sort of late Victorian um, London is really an attempt to talk about how the kind of developments in, in science and social thinking in the late 19th century influenced um, how sexual behavior and sexual deviancy was understood. So a couple of different things happen. You have the birth of biology, the birth of racial science and racism, and the kind of triumph of Darwinian thinking. And all of those kind of combined um, to provide these new and quite terrifying ways of understanding sexual pathologies. Um, and Jack the Ripper uh, happened, the, those murders happened at the kind of the height of the Victorian era. Um, and they happened in, in Whitechapel, this slum neighborhood of London, uh, which was kind of the, the, seen as the shame of the, the nation, because it was all this uh, squalor and poverty and prostitution. Um, concentrated in one in one area, and um, the, the the Jack the Ripper murders were an occasion for people to look into that um, into that neighbourhood and see this dark reflection of of Victorian Britain. And the reason I talked about it in a book about seduction um, is that a lot of people hypothesise all these various explanations for what was going on. Um, and they su suggested that maybe these women were being seduced and then then later murdered. Uh, something which has been picked up in on many films about this era. Um, if you see the, the Johnny Depp film From Hell, that's kind of a, a implied in that, that there's a kind of seduction element and then it turns into these, these horrific murders. Um, another interesting point of reference is that uh, Whitechapel was uh, populated by a large number of Eastern European Jews who had migrated to London. And Judaism and um, seduction were kind of very much linked in the late mm. 19th century. 
um, because Jews were outsiders and so they were feared on that basis alone, but also Jews were held to have these magical powers. That, that um, is hilarious. I, I, that is so, so funny now that, you know, they believed that the Jews were, you know, these seducers who had this magic uh, powers to lure a woman. And you do show some art in, in the book as well. Of, you know, that is also from the Nazi, which Germany, which we are going to talk about in a second as well. But, you know, it's funny how they, and absurd in a way as well, how they thought that these Jews had this power to seduce this woman. Right. But, and, 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 you know, what's so interesting about this era is obviously Freud is just around the corner and Freud is going to provide explanations for this on the kind of the subconscious. But so much of what's the discourse, as you mentioned, is so weird and so uh, ludicrous that it's almost kind of foreshadowing these, uh, these kind of uh, psycho, psychological explanations and, and Freudianism. Um, the, but it, but it was taken it was taken pretty seriously. Another book I discuss in that chapter is um, Trilby, and Trilby is uh, by uh, Du Maurier, and Trilby was a massive bestseller uh, in this in this period. It's just huge. It's hard to overstate um, how influential it was. The, the Trilby hat, which is still still a term used today, is derived from that novel. That that was kind of one of the things that survived from the, the, mm. the Trilby mania, the late nineteenth century. And that entire book is based around this this figure of a Jewish composer and impresario who um, sexually and psychologically dominates a kind of Irish uh, soprano. And so I, I show some of the images in that book, from that book in in my book, and uh, it's it's horrific in its kind of crude anti-Semitism. Mm. And, uh, but it shows that these were ideas abroad at that time, and um, it it. it when you try and understand it, we have to stop thinking quite deeply about what was going on. And one of the things I would say is going on is people are trying to reconcile um, observable human behavior. Uh, you know, the fact that men and women interact, they mingle, they court, they fall in love, um, all the rest of it with um, certain ideological preconceptions about racial purity mm. and national health and the kind of um, monolithic Victorian ideal and when those two, when the reality and the and the kind of fiction come into conflict, you end up with these very strange ideas which are represented in the culture. Mm. And another novel that you speak about, and I've, I didn't think about this until I read your book, is that Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde, they do fit somewhat in the seductive narrative, and you explained it quite well, how, how they fit in. Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, Jekyll and Hyde is, is not a book um, about seduction, <laughs> although, <laughs> although it, it has been interpreted as a book about homosexuality. Mm. So there is a kind of um, psychosexual interpretation of it. Um, but it's interesting because it is about uh, these kind of uh, strange biological, racial um, understandings of, of human behavior because Jekyll is this kind of Anglo-Saxon ideals, upstanding, intelligent um, Victorian sort of Superman. And Hyde is this simian, malevolent, um, atavistic creature who, and they inhabit the same home and they, they inhabit the same person. And so again, if you want to work the conscience, conscience versus the subconscious, that's a very powerful image of that. Um, I discuss it in the book um, because 
it came to it was dramatized on, at the lyceum theater at the exact same time as the jack the ripper murders were happening in whitechapel the lyceum theater is on the strand so only two miles away from whitechapel uh, one of the most famous theaters um, of its day um, and many people at the time drew this connection between the uh, Jekyll and Hyde on the stage and the Whitechapel murders happening a few miles away. And they both were um, kind of episodes in this kind of strange understanding of behavior from a scientific racist, Darwinian, psychosexual perspective. Um, and it was kind of a very shocking illustration for Victorians of mm -hmm. kind of drama and fiction overlapping into reality at the same time. I remember writing about this up-and-coming actor who really get rich and if you will, from like better words, because they didn't think he was Jack the Ripper because I wasn't he the guy that played Dr. Jekyll and Dr. Hyde at this point, and he was, you know, and 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 again to draw comparison to that to today when with social media as well, it's easy to you know find a victim. There was this documentary on not that this is it's kind of relatable, but it's really you know, about this woman who disappeared in Skid Row and, you know, they hunted this guy who was at Skid Row a year before and he became suddenly the victim and they ruined his life, you know, because they thought he murdered her, which wasn't the case. But, you know, in this case as well, they found one person and then put, started to chase him and everyone suddenly started believing that this man is Jack the Ripper, you know. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's easy to ruin someone's life once, you know, you find, and this, and like I said, this is true for today as well. When once you find someone, think someone is guilty, it's easy to get that man's life ruined, as with back in the day of Jack the Ripper. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he was, he was accused in letters to the Times that this actor, who, as you say, was playing both Jekyll and Hyde, that was kind of one of the, the gimmicks to, to draw the crowds in, and uh, yeah, they had to close the, the, the. Um, the play, they had to end it and give money to charity and do all these things to try and try and make good. And he ends up being so basically hounded out of London. It was, it was a huge uh, financial disaster. Um, but yeah, like like you say, is it, it this the kind of um, moral panic was very real and, and obviously in Whitechapel at least extremely understandable. Mm. And another novel that you write about um, is arguably one of the most famous novels in the world. Yes, which has been made several films as well, is Frankenstein. So explain how that fit in today. And again, you did quite well in the book because Frankenstein as well fit quite well into the seduction narrative. Yeah, yeah. So Frankenstein, um, obviously written by Mary Shelley, um, and uh, she, as a young woman, um, had this extraordinary uh, period where she was living um, and traveling with uh, Lord Byron um, and obviously Percy Shelley and um, Mary Shelley's um, half-sister who ended up being uh, sort of seduced and abandoned by Byron. Um, they had a, a child together, Alba, who was uh, Byron kind of quite cruelly uh, disregarded for many years and then eventually decided he, he wanted her to live with him and forced uh, uh, you know, his his ex-lover to surrender the child. The child was brought to Venice and almost straight away died. So very tragic story. Um, 
Frankenstein famously was written in the year without a summer um, in, by Lac Leman in, in Switzerland. Um, and there was this night where the story goes, they were all telling ghost stories. And um, the ghost story that Mary Shelley told ended up becoming Frank, uh, Frankenstein. Frankenstein is interesting because it's often read as a kind of parable about technology, which it obviously was. I mean, she was very um, well-versed in kind of the science of the day and it was kind of fashionable to talk about galvanism and that kind of thing but it was also a, a book about creation and the perils of reckless creation and one way of thinking about the frank dr frankenstein um, is that he is engaged in a reckless procreation he, he gives birth to something in a, a which he which he discards and that is kind of a, a metaphor, I think, for Byron's kind of very cruel behavior. Uh, and there's a moment in, in Frankenstein where Frankenstein confronts, uh, the monster confronts Dr. Frankenstein and he says to him, how dare you sport with life? Um, and I think that is uh, Mary Shelley talking to, to Byron. I mean, he's talking about some, you know, I, if I, remember, I don't remember the word for word, but he's talking about something. Like you said, how dare you sport with life? I don't know, throw when I was the son and you threw me away, something like, something like that, I think. Exactly, exactly. And uh, yeah, I think, and, and, and Mary Shelley was a very perceptive, intelligent woman who, who lived uh, very close to Byron, and, but in a kind of protected position as, as Percy Shelley's wife. Um, and I, I think she was definitely very, very impacted by what she saw, especially because her father, um, Good Godwin, um, had been a very uh, enthusiastic proponent of sexual freedom. Again, like Casanova, along these lines of kind of enlightenment rationality. And he wrote a very weird book where he talked about how the family was going to become extinct and men and women would raise children together and everyone would meet on terms of perfect rational sexual parity. And Mary Shelley's life, in part, was a kind of refutation of that idea. And she saw the kind of tragic consequences of what happens when sex uh, meets uh, power. And Byron had a lot more power than her. Mm -hmm. her mm. And so, something I want to talk about as well, we don't jump a little again, is in the early 20th century America, where segregation was a big part but then all the way up to the late 60s. And one prominent young man who was a boxer of African-American descent, he is the boxer Johnson. And he spent quite a long time, because he was as well a seducer, but what was perhaps so special about him was that he also seduced. And this is quite fascinating, in, especially if you know a little bit about early 20th century America, it's... He seduced white women as well as not just, I mean, people wouldn't have cared less if it was African-American women, but because he would as well seduced white women, this was in that time outrageous. Yeah, uh, Jack Johnson, one of the most fascinating figures of, of his day. Um, like you say, he was a, a black man born in Texas uh, during Reconstruction. And uh, he became a boxer as a young man and went on to become the first black heavyweight champion of the world, um, which was a big deal back then because boxing was, it was the most popular sport in the world. I think that's, that's a defensible claim. Um, and all of the, the boxing champions were white. 
and they refused to fight black fighters. It was called the color line. And there was lots of pressure within the media and within societies for boxers not to risk losing the heavyweight crown to a black man because that would be considered like a racial defeat. Mm. It's, again, the same kind of racial stew of ideas that I was talking about in Victorian England were, as you mentioned, very much current in America and across the world. Um, Johnson, you know, he was an athlete. He was a sportsman. He was a good looking guy. He had lots of money. He had a fun time. And yeah, women were, were a big part of his existence. And he didn't respect the color line, as it were, when it came to romance. And so he had um, uh, white wives and white girlfriends at a time when uh, those kind of uh, liaisons were illegal in large parts of the United States. And frankly, uh, in many places, didn't really have to be illegal because you would get killed. This was the heyday of lynching. This mm. was, was, and he, there were several instances he was involved in which, which could have been turned into lynchings had he not escaped. And in fact, the response to some of his victories were lynchings and race riots all over the United States. So yeah, I think everyone should know about the story of Jack Johnson, both because he was such an amazing character and such an interesting figure, but also because his life uh, really uh, foreshadowed so much of the kind of the civil rights movement yeah. and what, what happened later in the century. Um, Muhammad Ali said that the greatest boxer who ever lived was Jack Johnson. Not, not because he was more skilled than Ali, Ali would never say that, but, but because of his bravery, because he, he lived a certain way um, at a time when it could really get you killed. And uh, he was a huge inspiration for Ali and a huge inspiration for, for many people in the, in the civil rights era. Mm. And he, there was a, you talked about riots, and even, even in the African American community, there was uh, you know riots. If I think if he won one time, and it was this, you write about this kid who just was strolling alone, and what's happening? There's a riot going on because you know I think he won. I don't remember exactly the story, but they, they had this riot because because of his either victory or defeat. I'm not quite sure remember yeah, the details, story. but yeah. The story you're referring to is Louis Armstrong, the famous jazz musician, as a young child, was a newspaper boy in New Orleans. And Jack Johnson won a fight and the white community started and the, the black community started celebrating. And in response, the, the white community started rioting. Right. And Louis Armstrong was saw a, another boy running down the street and he asked him what's going on. And he said, Jack Johnson won the, won the heavyweight title. And now there's a riot, so you better get out of here. <laughs> and he ran away. And he, he, put, he put that story in his memoirs, you know, 50 years later. Um, th these were kind of landmark events. The, the, the riots attending Jack Johnson winning the heavyweight championship of the world were the biggest in the United States until the 1968 riots that followed the assassination of Martin Luther King. So that, that, that puts in perspective that these were massive events. Um, and... The root of it all was his race and his, the fact that he was well known for having white girlfriends. And this combination of kind of uh, sexuality and sporting prowess just really, really did not fly with, with white America. Because he does get banned from the United States at some point as well, doesn't he? Yeah. So, so th th this requires like a bit of um, explanation because what, what happens with, with Johnson is they can't defeat him in the ring. 
they try, they send everyone, all the great white hopes, as they were called, and he beats them all. He just can't be beaten. So they go after him using the law. And the law they use is a the Man Act. The Man Act was um, originally uh, founded to fight prostitution. It's still actually on the law books today um, to fight prostitution or, or what is now people trafficking. Um, but at the time, it was used both to fight fight people trafficking and also to police sexuality. Um, and the, the law said if a, if a woman is um, transported across state lines for immoral purposes, then a federal crime has been committed. The FBI was created, it's early years, it was created to enforce the Man Act. Um, so this was a big deal. And after uh, he retained the, he- the heavyweight um, uh, title, for uh, in a huge defense match against uh, one of the most famous boxers of the day, and he knocks him out. They they file charges against him on the Man Act, and rather than um, and he's found guilty, um, as everyone expected he would be. And rather than go to prison, he flees to Canada and then goes to um, uh, the UK. And he was in London, um, basically during the First World War. He actually was in Russia when the war broke out and he had to get uh he had to flee back to london and he basically sat out the first world war in in london and then he goes to he went to havana in 1917 and he, he lost the title there and then after that he kind of drifted around for a while and eventually went back to the us and served a period of time in prison um no, doesn't for, he become an aide try to become an and this is an agent or something for years yeah. at some point yeah, Johnson's life was really, you couldn't make it up. It was it was really something. He 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 went to Spain for a period after he lost the title uh, fight and did try and become a spy. I think he was actually recruited for a period and then he kind of spent all the money on things he shouldn't have and they let him go. Um, but yeah, just, just another episode in a very strange life. Mm. It, it does continue while, while in banishment. It does continue his boxing career as well, I think, in, in London, right? He tries, but basically the boxing uh kind of ground to a halt because of the war um a lot of the, a lot of the great boxers are fighting um in the trenches um and a lot of the interest in the sport is being sapped away and also boxing at that time was quite an international sport one of jackson Jack, jackson won the heavyweight title for the first time in um australia to give you some perspective like he was used to traveling around for fights there was lots of back and forth across the Atlantic. For, and, um, and again, we have to remember there were commercial fights at this point in time uh, across the Atlantic, especially, uh, or at all, so to speak. So we had to take travel. It took quite a while to travel these distances. Yeah, yeah, he was taking, he was taking the, the liners. Um, but yeah, all of that comes to a halt during the, the war. He ends up uh, basically just uh, becoming a kind of music hall curiosity in London. Um isn't able to train very much. And when he does get back into the ring, it's it's kind of a very drawn out and quite brutal beating um, by Jess Willard. Uh, so a, a, quite a sad end to his, his career uh, as a boxer, but he, he remains this kind of icon of, of uh, you know, both, both sporting ability and kind of this, and the early civil rights movement. Mm. And wasn't it because, I don't, do forgive me if I screw up a little bit here, but wasn't it because of Johnson that, you know, they, they tried to do, was that the man that the, the failed seduction attempt to, to put seduction under court of law? Or was that later? So the, the man act had already been passed by the mm. time um, so Johnson uh, 
uh, because I do remember you sp speaking about you know how there was a, this attempt to put seduction under law as well. So it, it, it was complicated because basically the problem in the UK and in the USA was that most people did not want to have um, seduction laws on the books criminalizing um, this behavior for the very simple reason that at this time, most of the electorate were men, most of the lawyers and judges were men, um, and they didn't really want to pass a law that was going to exclusively target men and discipline male sexual behavior. So a lot of the campaigners who were pushing this legislation were women. They were proto-feminists, um, in some cases, avowed feminists, um, and also kind of sympathetic men, often from the temperance movement or the chastity movements, kind of, you know, usually Protestant campaigning um, evangelicals. And so because there was great resistance to having seduction laws on the books at a federal level, there were lots at a state level, um, they had to use other ways. And the Mann Act, which, as I said, was designed to police um, prostitution, was that, that, that way of doing it. It was kind of a, a way round of the, the kind of opposition to a formal seduction statute, but effectively acted in the same way. Um, in the UK, a very similar thing happened where they were unable to pass seduction laws, or they tried. Um, and so they passed the 1885 Criminal Law Amendment Act, which um, criminalized lots of things around prostitution. It also famously criminalized um, homosexuality. Oscar Wilde was punished under that law. Um, and these were kind of routes to um, trying to discipline uh, male sexual activity through the back door. Um, and there is a strange and persistent relationship between the seduction narrative and prostitution. And it's, a and it's, it's one of the themes of the book that there's this constant counterplay between how we think about sex work and how we think about seduction. Mm. And I want to bring up another episode speaking of sex work, which is a, a while, a month or so ago, I don't exactly remember we spoke about sex and sexuality in the medieval era. And, you know, back then there were actually bishops and, you know, priests that had these constitutions for prostitutes that they just looked at it as it's another way of life that men need, you know, sex in their life. And they actually may help these prostitutes by either you could become, you know, if you marry the prostitute, you get a certain amount of, you know, money I think I'm not quite sure you have to listen to the episode because I don't remember exactly how it goes but you know they had these institutions back in the middle ages of for prostitutes even the church actually helped with this back then interesting yeah I'll have to listen to that one but anyway something that I think you should write more about as well is the selection narrative and again we did jump a little in time here so I apologize for that but uh, the the Nazis and the Nazi Germany is as well a part, bit, bit part in this, not big, but bit part of the seduction narrative. Right. And uh, yeah, we, we discussed earlier this kind of um, very strange complex of ideas around Jewishness and magical powers and sexual mm. exploitation. Um, and that was present in, in Dracula and in the Jack the Ripper discourse and in, and was kind of generally accepted across Europe and the United States in the late 19th century that, that, that Jews were heavily involved in 
prostitution, um, which was seen as this kind of systematic exploitation of white women, and it was called the white slave. So, um, and this was an idea that that the Nazis really ran with. Um, if you read Mein Kampf, Hitler talks about the white slave trade directly. He writes these kind of you know screes about um, kind of uh, Viennese. Jews who were like pimps and and playboys and exploited white women. Um, this is all in his kind of interpretation, obviously. Uh, then when they're in power, one of the things the Nazis do is to try and stop um, Jews intermarrying with so-called Aryans. And they do lots of small things and some quite big things to basically try and stop what they viewed as this kind of compulsion on the part of Jews to kind of seduce and hypnotize, and in some cases oh. enslave in, in sexual bondage, um, non-Jewish women. So uh, yeah, it was, it was, and some of these cartoons I, I show in the book, a reprint in the book um, from these sort of anti-Semitic publications that the Nazis bankrolled really dramatically illustrate <laughs> this idea that Jews were kind of trying to corrupt the body politic by seducing Aryan women. Um, I've found one here, and if you're watching on YouTube, you might see there's a caricature of Nazi yeah. explain about you know, how the Nazis portrayed Jews seducing the women. Exactly, exactly, and and um, it's one of these um, ideas which, if you see it in isolation, um, you might just think, oh, this is just another horrific thing the Nazis did, which which obviously it was, but. What I try and do in the book is situate that within a larger mm. context of the, the white slave trade as a kind of discourse. Um, this kind of idea of seduction being involved, this kind of scrambling of the rational mm. mind, which kind of overlapped with this sort of ideas of the of the Jews having magical powers, but also kind of being uh, agents of the subconscious within these these um, kind of placid western societies so that there, there was just a lot going on and it's no surprise that hitler picked up on a lot of that because it wasn't a minor thing these were subjects that were discussed in the news every day in the late 19th century when he was growing up and you know there were white slave trade conventions in london there were laws passed nationally and internationally to combat this this kind of craze um so these were all big things in the world of the late 19th century. And, and it's not an accident that it ended up being a feature of kind of uh, Nazi anti-Semitic discourse. And of course, it's the Nazis took this to a whole other level. But like you explained, Europe in general was really a very anti-Semitic in, in the early 20th century. It wasn't just Germany and Hitler, like, like you said, it's entire most of Western Europe and I don't know to what extent America was, but they were really anti-Semitic in general back then. Yeah, and you know, we, we talked about um, Jack the Ripper earlier. I mean, a lot of those books about um, strange things happening in the cities in the late Victorian period, a lot of those are talking about, what are, those, what are they talking about in these communities like Whitechapel, which have been transformed by immigration. And these are basically books which are discussing uh, either implicitly or explicitly the kind of psychosexual fears that that, that demographic um, sort of change has has created. So uh, there's always this kind of relationship between fear of the outsider and um, 
a kind of sexual panic over like, you know, they're going to come for our women. Uh, the same thing still happens today. I mean, we, we, we all know that is a trope of like right wing um, immigration discourse, for instance. So these are expressions. And we see Donald Trump and the way he, you know, treated Mexicans in his political agenda. It's basically not the same level, of course, but, you know, it's uh, there are similarities there. Right, right. Um, yeah. And, and, and the, the anti-Semitism of, of the day drew upon like very old anti-Semitic stereotypes, but also quite modern uh, <laughs> as well. So uh, it's, it's definitely a part of the story I wanted to include because it's a kind of a tragic uh, footnote mm. to um, a lot of the, 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 the themes I discussed in the second half of the book. Mm. And speaking of the second half of the book, something that, and that is main, big happening in the 60s is, is the hippie movement. And as we spoke briefly about earlier, it is uh, the sexual liberation and something I found fascinating when I was listening to your book and you spoke about this is that you, I don't remember who spoke to an ex-hippie I don't hippie but he said he asked the hippie you know was there a sexual liberation and he says no no there wasn't yeah that's uh, from um, atomized by Michelle Welbeck uh, who uh, very caustic <laughs> critic of the uh, sexual revolution um Quite, quite prophetic critic as well, because I think in the last five years, especially, there's been a big revisionism of the 1960s, 1970s sexual revolution. And I think it's gone from being this kind of um, thing that was either celebrated or kind of gently mocked um, by kind of the likes of uh, Austin Powers or whatever, mm. um, to now being... So it's like just a great job of making fun of... Yeah. Especially with the episode that Cartman tries to get into the hippie movement and they have a South Park when they have a hippie Woodstock in South Park. I'll look that up. Um, but yeah, you know, it's 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 definitely it's transitioned from this this kind of quite good humoured, um, irreverent treatment of the sexual revolution to a slightly darker interpretation. Um, and I think the sixties and seventies are quite a misunderstood era today i think we, we don't really get it right um and i think the sexual revolution is definitely something we we are only starting to really understand but one of the things i would say i and i discussed in the book is that at the time the arguments they were making in support of sexual liberation were very very similar to the arguments being made in um the enlightenment they were basically claims that you know human beings are rational all of these controls on sexuality and behavior are irrational and a kind of hangovers of religion and other superstitious practices. Mm. Basically, if we let everyone do what they want and be free, they'll do what's in their best interests and it'll be work out fine. So it's a very rational economic model of human behavior. And so maybe rather than thinking of it as liberation, you can think of it as, um, liberalization mm. kind of liberalized an economy we just liberalized the sexual economy mm. has the hippie movement and the sexual sorry the sexual liberation in the hippie movement has it been over saturated do you think i think i think the hippie movement is one of those things that like it was over before it began mm. really i mean basically you had the summer of love in 1967 and that's kind of the high point of the hippie movement 
And then after that, it becomes like a cliche slash a joke such that by the 1970s, I'm not sure many people are calling themselves hippies. It's kind of like hipsters today. No one confesses to being a hipster, but obviously mm -hmm. other people assign the term. So I think, no, I think I'm not sure there are many people who by 1972 or so were embracing uh, the hippie um, term or the word. But again, the 60s and 70s were quite a radical period. And there were literally hundreds of thousands of young Americans who moved, who ran away from home, who moved to communes, who moved to kind of squats or shared um, housing situations and did live or try and live in this kind of liberated, mm. uh, non-conventional manner. Mm. All of it was to do with sex. A lot of it was to do with um, ownership and property and just ways of living. Mm. But sexual, sexual liberation was, was a big part of that. And challenging the kind of monogamous norm was a big part of that. Um, and we're still living kind of downstream of those experiments. And I know you don't really write anything about this in your book, so sorry if you can't talk much about it, but from the 80s, and I want to talk, talk a little bit about, about this, when rock bands become a big part of the culture and musical, you know, with Motley Crue and everything, on all these kind of rock bands, and, and they kind of do fit, I think, in, in this seductive narrative as well, because you do get these groupies that comes to the band, and, you know, you have these rock stars ended up sleeping with a lot of their, you know, fans, and like I said, they called groupies. Um, but would this be appropriate to talk about a little bit about the, the rock star, not the movement, but, you know, how they, I, I do think they kind of fit a little bit into the movement, into the seductive narrative as well, a little bit. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. I, I, it's, not, it's not something I've, I've thought about, but kind of off, off the cuff, one thing I would observe is that, the, there's always kind of a lag between something happening um, on the on, in the culture, and then something that thing becoming popularized, um, you know, in a more general way. So the sexual revolution originally was amongst a small minority, mm. avant-garde of um, hippies and intellectuals and musicians and university graduates in the mm. late sixties. I would say Willie Nelson's arguably one of the most famous ones. Yeah, exactly. And, but but most of most of American society was very conservative. And it wasn't until the late 70s and the 80s that a lot of those once avant-garde ideas began to percolate in the larger society. And that basically sexual liberation became popular, as in most people or more people or a majority of people were kind of practicing it. And a lot of the expectations around sex had been eroded away. People were getting married later. That was a big, probably the biggest change. The average age of marriage went from like 23 to 29 in about and a decade. And obviously the drugs as well in, in, those, in that time plays a huge part as you had the word drugs later. Exactly. And, 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 that, and that is a good example of why this revisionism is currently happening. Because, mm. um, and, and Joan Didion wrote about this at the time in Slouching Towards Bethlehem, the famous essay about Summer of Love, where, you know, uh, a lot of this was pretty, pretty um, uh, squalid. We're talking about people in, in um, communes, they'd probably taken too many drugs and some guy with dodgy hair and some bell bottoms is, is, is uh, making a move. 
it's not it's not what we would understand as as consensual sex and a lot of those rough edges and unpleasant episodes were kind of historically glossed over mm. and now um we there was a big attempt to revise that and an ongoing attempt to revise that and say like well who benefited from this period of so-called sexual liberation mm. what was the what were the material consequences of that for the people involved uh when you look at it not just at like the level of kind of some meme of, of freedom but actually the lives that were affected and mm. um, we don't end a little bit now soon and before we do i want to talk about modern form of seduction which is and i mean i obviously have a tinder myself and you know let's talk about online dating for a little mm. bit because you do spend a little part about talking about online dating as well sure i mean and uh like i said i think i think kind of my take on the sexual revolution was as i said it wasn't about liber- liberation it was about liberalization and it was about the triumph of a basically an essentially economic model of viewing sexual interaction so hyper rationalized um and you know a lot of that seems quite abstract in practice in practice until you get to the birth of online dating mm. where you see this kind of algorithmically led um way of men and women um interacting with each other which really foregrounds um a very kind of cold um view of how humans interact with each other and um basically creates a kind of game theoretical environment for for human interactions which i think leaves a lot of people rather cold because it's mm. there's not there's not much humanity in there and there's a lot of kind of callousness and just uh you know m- indifference by design um mm. So and 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 if you look at one one of the charts I show in the book was um produced by a Stanford professor who's been studying these kind of long long range trends. Once in... again I can show it right here again if you are on YouTube you should be able to see the the graph exactly. right here. Basically there's a red line which goes from 0 to like 40 50% which represents how people are meeting um through the internet. So that's a revolution that's happened in our lifetimes is is gone from mm. It didn't exist to something which is now the majority of how people meet um and i think that's really something worth dwelling on we've lived through something which is unprecedented in history this this the the the, the kind of online dating revolution and it's worth thinking about what what kind of behaviors is that most that does that incentivize what kind of interactions does that enable what kind of interactions does it not enable um it i think it's something which really deserves and warrants thought because at the end of the day how people meet is actually one of the most important aspects of a human life it will define mm. a lot of things about someone's existence so i think it's worth worth thinking about mm. and you, you do write an i found this kind of sad story and quite fascinating as well about this boy in the bar who isn't could have been good looking but he's you know the style he dresses in it's quite peculiar yeah that's another another <laughs> that was another part of the book which got picked up quite a lot by reviewers um and yeah it's just an anecdote it's something i saw in a in a bar in london some guy clearly trying to do some kind of pickup artist thing and kind of uh, flaming out uh, quite spectacularly and uh 
I included it in there because I think it's a good counterpoint to all of the sexual revolution kind of glossy uh, storytelling, mm. where in fact we, we, a lot of what's going on now is kind of, uh, everyone has these, has these expectations which have been fostered by, by the media and by, by the kind of post-sexual revolution propagandizing of that revolution. Um, and the reality is men and women trying, trying and often failing to uh, meet and make contact. Mm. When you see it up close, it's kind of tragicomic. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I included that in there just as a kind of reminder that all of these things are ultimately grounded in individuals and their interactions and how, how people react to that, that story is, tells you a lot about where they stand on these issues. And so it's kind of a good test of like everyone sees something different, I think. And obviously something that came, was a huge part by the time you were writing and publishing the book was the Harvey Weinstein allegations and, of course, the birth of the Me Too movement. And you write by the end of the book that, you know, at the time of writing, it was too early to tell how this movement would go, but I'm sure we can talk a little bit more about this now, as it's been quite a few years later since the Harvey Weinstein and the Me Too movement, how it really ended up and how it's currently going. So let's talk about this before we run off the show. Sure. I mean, you're right. Uh, and and you, <laughs> you, you, you've caught me at a good time, I suppose, because we are now, <laughs> now three years since the book was published and five years or so since the, the Harvey Weinstein revelations. Um, and I think it is an interesting time to think about the long range consequences of that. I think, um, I think things have changed um in a way that maybe uh people didn't expect i think people we mentioned before when we were talking just before we started recording that with covid a lot of the me too discourse kind of disappeared from the media mm. got taken over by other stories and nowadays i don't I mean, really rightfully so yeah and like nowadays i don't really hear the phrase much me too i don't really read about it mm. whereas a few years ago it was everywhere so in a sense it could seem like it was just kind of a phase that that came and went hmm. i do think though it did leave did leave a mark i do think behaviors and expectations have changed and people are a lot more guarded about a lot of these things uh in a way they wouldn't have been before especially when it comes to the workplace so we'll see um i'm not i'm not a member of gen z my understanding about Gen Z norms is that they are a lot more sensitive about these kind of things. Mm, yeah. And that may well be in part because they grew up with that in the background. But, you know, it's, things are complex. It's very hard to assign mm. causation. Um, I think there's probably a whole lot else going on, not least the kind of growth of social media and kind of every, everything being filmed and recorded the whole time, which probably means that a lot of people are probably going to be just out of self-preservation a lot more cautious and um the kind of freewheeling days of the kind of motley crew behavior yeah you, you mentioned earlier is definitely uh gonna it's it mm. definitely i think mm. so i think we're gonna round it up that thank you so much for coming on and before we go do you have anything you want to promote social media where people might find you if they have questions and where can of course people find the book which i'm holding up right here yeah, the book is available uh, everywhere uh, that good books are sold. 
Um, so yeah, please get by a copy if it sounds interesting to you. Um, and I'm on Twitter at Clement Knox with two underscores between the words. Uh, so yeah, drop me a line. Thank you so much for coming again. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. This has been one that aged well. My name is Alan. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts these days. Please check out some of our other episodes. I'm sure you will find something that you like. And we have some great episodes coming up as well. Please like, share and subscribe. And I'll see you next time.